I thought I'd get an amen on that one. <laughs> Conflict in marriage is normal. In fact, repeat that. Conflict in marriage is normal. Say it again. Conflict in marriage is normal. You feel better already, don't you? Let's bow our heads, please, and close our eyes. No, I'm just kidding. The truth is you cannot put two people together, two people with issues, people with, with baggage, people with wounds, and expect that there will not be conflict. Couples who say, oh, we never fight, are either lying or denying. That's the only two options. And it doesn't take too long after you get married to discover that the person you married is weird. <laughs> she, she puts macaroni in chili. He puts ketchup on mashed potato on everything on everything on mashed potatoes they're weird and you know when you discover that after about 5 minutes of sharing a bathroom with them it is it's almost impossible for a man to share a bathroom with a woman first of all a woman's bathroom looks like the cockpit of a 727 Man's bathroom's got a razor, you know, a washcloth, a towel. I mean, you may be able to read a newspaper through it, but they got a towel. I, you know, before I got married, I used maybe three cotton balls a decade. And then all of a sudden, I got married, and we we're buying them by the, by the gross. And if a man and woman have to share a closet, oh my goodness. Guys, we get about, about this much space in a closet. But you know what? That really works out because that's enough space for both our pairs of pants and both our shirts and our sport coat. So we're, we're good, really, with that amount of space. But the truth is, in relationships, there's going to be conflict. And, and here's where the problem starts. When, when we start seeing conflict as something we have to turn in our favor, when we allow conflict to turn into competition and we start thinking that we have to win the argument, that's where the problems start. Because if you think you have to win an argument, you will miss the fact that when one person ends, both people lose. You're on the same team. So what we've got to learn to do is to fight fair. The, the point is not I win, you lose. The point is how do we resolve this conflict so that our relationship is stronger and better than it was before? So what I want to do this morning is, is give you almost everything I've got 
in 24 years of marriage, almost 24 years of marriage, and, and many, many years of, in ministry counseling couples, and that is how do we work our way through conflict without totaling the relationship? Is there a way to fight fair? Is there a way to make our marriages better? I believe there is. And I believe that the, the key principles we will see today will not just help us in our marriages. I think they'll help us in all our relationships, in our marriages and our other family relationships, with our parents, with our children, with our coworkers, with our classmates, with our neighbors. All of our relationships can benefit from learning how to fight fair. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open it up to the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 5. And if you're a little fuzzy on where Song of Solomon is, that's okay. Just let your Bible fall open to the middle and you'll be very, very close. If you find yourself in Isaiah or Jeremiah, just go back towards the front a little bit. If you're in Psalms or Ecclesiastes, go towards the back and you'll catch right up with us. We're in a series of messages we're calling Naked, Uncovering the Truth About Relationships. And we're going through this book of the Old Testament called Song of Solomon. We've been watching a couple's relationship develop and progress. And we've been, we've been watching them so far, and we've seen them meet and date and, and fall in love and get married. Last week, we were, it was their wedding night. And now we're going to watch how this couple, King Solomon of Israel, and, and his wife, the, the woman, we're not told her name, we're going to watch how they resolve conflict. I want to tell you something. There are a couple things I like about what we're going to see in the Scripture. And one thing is that there is no attempt to gloss over or cover up the conflict between these two people. There's no attempt to hide the, the conflict that's going on. And I want you to know, one of the reasons that we can believe the Bible is true is because over and over and over again, we see the mess that the people, the real people, made in their real lives in the pages of this book. Now, if you and I were making up a Bible, we'd make everybody good and, and happy and perfect, right? But God doesn't do that. He, he just shows us everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I want you to know, that gives me hope. Doesn't you? That gives me hope because we're going to see that they did some things right and they did some things wrong and they found a way to work through conflict and make their relationship better. We've said it before. Everybody wants happily ever after. But happily ever after doesn't just happen. It takes work. It takes commitment. It takes a willingness to work through conflict. So this morning I want us to see five fair fight rules. And we'll get started in Song of Solomon 5 and verse 2. The woman is speaking. One thing in the Song of Solomon, it switches back and forth. Sometimes Solomon is speaking. Sometimes the woman is speaking. It's poetry, so we have to dig a little bit to get to the understanding. But she's speaking here in verse 2 of chapter 5, and she says, I slept, but my heart was awake when I heard my lover knocking and calling. Open to me, my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my, head, my hair with the dampness of the night. But I responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? 
I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? And here's the first fair fight rule. Number one, pick your battles. Pick your battles. Learn to pick your battles. You know, when I was a kid, we'd fight about anything. I fought a kid one time because he made fun of my brother's haircut. Didn't matter that I'd just been making fun of my brother's haircut. He could not make fun of my brother's haircut. I fought a neighbor kid one time because I liked Pepsi. And he told me he'd rather drink out of a mud puddle. So I, in an attempt to persuade him to see things from another point of view, popped him a good one with a Pepsi bottle. I'm not proud of that. But what changed? I grew up. Right? I grew up. I got old enough and mature enough to understand that you have to pick your battles. Hey, listen. Every issue is not life or death. Do you hear me? If we get our heads around that, that'll eliminate 80% of conflict in most marriages. Some things are just not worth a fight. There's always going to be things we disagree about. The question is, is it worth the drama? Is it worth the discomfort? Is it worth the emotional expenditure to fight about? What in the world? What in the world is wrong with just saying, well... That's the way she does that. That's what he thinks about that. And we're just not going to make a big deal out of it. So what's the conflict going on between Solomon and his wife? She, She says something that I think it would resonate with all of us. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. You ever had a night like that? That's just a poetic way of saying, I laid in the bed, and I tossed and turned, and I wasn't able to sleep. There were a million things going through my head. And then the pillow got hot on this side, and so I flipped it over. and ta- you know, Every time I looked at the clock, it was three minutes since the last time I had looked. That's what she's saying. And, and, and what is she worried about? What is she troubled about? He's not home. It's late. He says, there's, there's dew on my head. I mean, it's late. He's been out, probably working. And it's gotten late. It's gotten bedtime. And I'm sure his phone was dead, so he couldn't call. And, and he goes home and he knocks on her bedroom door. And in that, in that culture, in that time, it was very common for married couples to sleep in separate places, in separate uh, bedrooms. And he knocks on the door to see if they can be together. And she says, I've taken off my robe and washed my feet. Now that is a, that is a very Middle Eastern way of saying, not tonight. I have a headache. <laughs> she said, I, I've already put on my full strength, triple ply flannel nightgown. The one that starts at my chin and goes all the way down past my toes. The one that is shaped roughly like a cardboard refrigerator box. And I've already washed my face and taken off my makeup. So not just no. No! And the conflict begins. 
And here's where some decisions have got to be made. Here's where some things have got to be figured out. Are we going to do this now? Are we going to fight about this? Are we going to have this conflict right here or right now? Or are we going to let it go? Yeah, pick your battles. Their story continues in verse 4. Again, she speaks. She says, My lover tried to unlatch the door, and my heart thrilled within me. I jumped up to open the door for my love. My hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolts. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. Here's the second fair fight rule. Learn to communicate. Learn to communicate. You may both be speaking English, but that does not mean you're speaking the same language. Sometimes words don't have the same meaning to two people in a relationship. Sometimes the words men and women say to each other require some translation, and I'm here to help. Here's a translation dictionary for women's English. When she says yes, that means no. When she says no, that means no. When she says maybe, that means no. When she says we need, that means I want. When she says, I'm sorry, that means you'll be sorry. (laughs) When she says, we need to talk, that means you're in trouble. (laughs) When she says, go ahead, that means you better not. (laughs) When she says, do what you want, that means you will pay for this later. And when she says, I'm not upset, that means, of course I'm upset, you moron. (laughs) Well, there's a translation dictionary for men's English, too. When he says, take a break, honey, you're working too hard, it means I can't hear the game over the vacuum cleaner. (laughs) When he says, that's interesting, dear, it means, are you still talking? When he says, you know how bad my memory is, it means I can remember the theme song to F Troop, the address of the first girl I ever kissed, and the vehicle identification number of every car I've ever owned, but I forgot your birthday. (laughs) That's not right. When he says, I can't find it, it means it didn't fall into my outstretched hands, so I'm completely clueless. Oh, that's just every time I go to the refrigerator. When he says, you look terrific, that's actually a prayer. Did you know that? It means, oh God, please don't let her try on one more outfit. I'm starving. When he says, I'm not lost, I know exactly where we are. 
It means no one will ever see us alive again. <laughs> so what's going on here between Solomon and his wife? She's in bed. She's worried and upset because he's not at home. And he shows up asking to be let in for a little couple's time. And she says, no, I'm already in bed. I'm already ready for bed. But then she has a change of heart. And she goes to open the door, and he's gone. Pretty obvious that they haven't quite learned how to communicate with one another. And listen, communication is more than just talking. It's more than just saying words. It has to do with every way we express ourselves. It has to do with our facial expression, with our tone of voice, with our, our body language. All of that communicates. And even the way we say the words communicates. You ever heard somebody say this? It wasn't what you said. It was what you said. Ah, you'd think we practiced that. It was how you said it. Because we can communicate different things with the same words. How about this simple little phrase, little, little four-word phrase? Can you help me? That's just a request for assistance, right? But what if we say, can you help me? <laughs> that means get off your butt. <laughs> can you help me? <laughs> and for those of you who were asleep until now, good morning. <laughs> you can even say it kind of sexy. Can you help me? <laughs> I think that was sexy. I don't know. So when she opens the door and Solomon's not there, he just communicated with her in a big, big way, right? Can I just give us all a best practice when it comes to conflict? You can make this another rule if you want to. No leaving while the disagreement is going on. Don't grab your keys and bail because you're arguing. I've heard people say, well, I just couldn't be there right then. I just had to get in my vehicle and drive for a while. Hey, listen, that does not solve problems. You know what it does when you grab your keys and run? It undermines trust in the relationship. It really, really does. Because you know what? None of us stood up in front of God and everybody and, and promised to, to be together for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, or until we get in an argument, and then I'm out of here. No, we said for better or worse. When you take off, when there's conflict, you're telling your spouse, you can't trust me to stick around when things get tough. Whenever there are problems or issues, instead of gutting it out, instead of working it out, see ya. It's a form of manipulation. It burdens the other person because you know what they start thinking? Well, don't ever make her mad. Don't ever upset him. He'll disappear on you. And what happens when we take off? Don't we end up at a friend's house? Or we end up somewhere talking, running into somebody we know and talking to them, and we end up saying to that person everything we ought to be saying to our spouse. And then when we get back home, we're emotionally spent because we've talked it through with that other person. And so, you know, we just kind of gloss over things, don't we? Ah, 
let's just forget about all that. We kiss and make up, but we never talk about it. And I want to tell you something. If you do not address the issue, it will come back to haunt you. You can believe that. And let that pattern repeat itself often enough. And suddenly you start to think, this relationship isn't working. And if you're not careful, the whole thing can come crashing down around you. What couples have to do is learn to stay in it. Learn to communicate. And hey, with each other. Don't talk to your mom about it. Don't talk to your friends about it. Don't talk to your coworkers about it. Get together in the same room and figure out how to fix the issues that come up in your relationship. Communicate with this person that you love and you want to share your life with. And remember, communication is our words, our tone, our expression. Reach them. Reach out to them. That will open them up and help you find some common ground. Learn to communicate. Well, let's go on and see what happens next in the story. Chapter 5, verse 6. We read the first part a moment ago. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. The night watchmen found me as they made their rounds. They beat and bruised me and stripped off my veil, those watchmen on the walls. Make this promise, O women of Jerusalem. If you find my lover, tell him I am weak with love. And here's the third fair fight rule. This is going to surprise you. Let God be God. Let God be God. Now, I know we've got to unpack that one a little bit. Here's, here's what I'm talking about. One of the huge causes of conflict in a relationship is unmet expectations. And when this person that we're in a relationship with is not meeting the expectations that we've got, we start trying to play God in their life and get them to change into being the person we want them to be. And we'll use some pretty ungodly means to make that happen. We'll use our anger, our rage. We'll use manipulation. We'll use guilt. We'll use fear. And I want to tell you something. It doesn't just happen in relationships. It happens in some churches too. You know what the antidote is? The solution? Is to learn that we can't change anyone but ourselves. And we can't even do that without God's help without His work in us. If we would spend as much time trying to change ourselves as we do trying to change other people, trying to change our spouse, marriages would be transformed. Look at what happens to her. She she takes matters into into her own hands. She goes out looking for Him, and she ends up getting beat up by the night watchman. Now, that's harsh. But in those days... Cities had to be protected. They built walls around them. They put high towers up and they put watchmen in them at night because that's when the cities were most vulnerable. This was the days before street lamps, the days before flashlights. And so their job was, while everyone else was asleep, 
They were awake and they were watching for thieves and spies and, and invading armies. And I want you to know something. When, when they came across someone who was running around at night when everybody else was in the bed, they subdued them first and asked questions later. See, they didn't want to be the ones standing in front of the king saying, well, I, we didn't know who it was. We thought it was somebody else. Uh-uh. They lose their job at the least, over something like that. So they put the beat down on the person first and then interrogated them to see what they were doing out. She went out, taking matters into her own hands, looking for him, and what she found was trouble. If God is going to do something in a person's life, if he's going to help them mature, if he's going to discipline them, if he's going to break the power of some kind of bad habit or addiction, let God do that. We need to get over ourselves in this area, folks. A lot of us do. We need to get over thinking that God has called us to be the junior Holy Spirit in another person's life. Listen, God has not enlisted you to fix your spouse Okay, I got one finally. Thank you, Will. We don't like to hear that. Hey, there's a freedom here, and some of us really need to try it on. There, It is liberating to say, you know what? I'm just going to work on the only person I can work on, and that's me. And I'm going to let God do what needs to be done in that other person's life. I'm going to let Him fix them. I'm going to let Him correct them. I'm going to let Him instruct them or discipline them. That is not my job. That's God's role. That's the Holy Spirit's job in another person's life. And if your spouse, if this person you're in a relationship with, if they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, or they're not doing something they should be doing, let me tell you the best way you can reach them. Live right. And let them see Jesus in you. That'll make a world of difference. That will bring the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I got to tell you, if they change, if they make a change because God is at work in their life and the Holy Spirit is convicting them, that change is a whole lot more likely to stick than the change they make because you nagged them into it or you made them feel guilty or afraid or ashamed. Because you can get somebody to change by doing that, but as soon as your influence in their life wanes even the least little bit, they'll go back to doing what they were doing before. Let God be God. Let's go on verse 10. She's speaking. She says, My lover is dark and dazzling, better than 10,000 others. His head is finest gold. His wavy hair is black as a raven. His eyes sparkle like doves beside springs of water. They are like jewels washed in milk. His cheeks are like gardens of spices giving off fragrance. His lips are like lilies perfumed with myrrh. His arms are like rounded bars of gold set with beryl. His body is like bright ivory glowing with lapis lazuli. His legs are like marble pillars set in sockets of finest gold. His posture is stately like the noble cedars of Lebanon. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is desirable in every way. Such 
O women of Jerusalem, is my lover, my friend. Here's the fourth fair fight rule, number four. Have a selective memory. Have a selective memory. Here's what this means. They've had this conflict. She's gone looking for him. She's gotten into trouble. And things are, are very messed up between them right now. And you know, no, you, we got to know what she does not do. She does not start rehearsing all of the bad things that have happened in her mind. Well, you know what? If he'd just come home when he was supposed to. You know what she starts doing? She starts reminding herself about why she fell in love with him in the first place. She starts describing how handsome he is. He's dazzling. Guys, I don't know if you've ever been called dazzling. It's pretty nice, let me tell you. <laughs> I think I'm offended that you were laughing. She talks about his leadership qualities. He stands above 10,000 others. She talks about his character. He's like a cedar of Lebanon. The best, that was the best wood in the world at that time. So she's talking about how noble his character is, how strong his integrity is. We all practice selective memory. It's just on different things. When a relationship is in trouble, we, we tend to focus on the bad stuff. Well, she, she never, or he won't, or if she would just, if he didn't. You know, when, when I counsel with couples, especially those who are fighting, one of the things I like to ask them is, how did you meet? And then that leads to, well, what attracted you to each other? And that gets them talking. Well, they were like this. Or they did this. Or I really liked this about them. And a lot of times you can see a subtle shift in thinking take place as they start remembering why they fell in love with that person in the first place. She starts recalling all of these great qualities that he has. And you know what? He does the same thing. In fact, if you go into chapter 6, in verse 5, look at what it says. Turn your eyes away for they overpower me. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep that are freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. And if you were here last week or you listened to the message online, you recognize that these are the same things, almost word for word, that he told her on their wedding night. He is reminding himself of what it is that caused him to fall in love with her. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to me because this may be the most important thing that I say this morning. Whether you've been married 40 years or 45 minutes, your life together is bigger than this current conflict. Did you hear me? Your life together is bigger than what you're going through right now. There were some important things about that person that drew you to them in the first place. 
Think about those. There are some good times, some happy memories that you share. Think about those. Dwell on those. And not on this current conflict that you're in. In verse 8, there in Song of Solomon 6, Solomon speaks. He says, even among 60 queens and 80 concubines and countless young women, I would still choose my dove, my perfect one. He's saying, I could have been with anyone. I could have married anyone. But I chose you. Reminding himself of why they fell in love in the first place. That's what we have to do. When there's conflict and when that thought pattern starts, well, he always, she never. Remind yourself of why you wanted to be with them in the first place. Have a selective memory. And this portion of their story wraps itself up in verse 11 of chapter 6. Solomon is speaking. He says, I went down to the grove of walnut trees and out to the valley to see the new spring growth, to see whether the grapevines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Look at verse 12. Before I realized it, I found myself in the royal chariot with my beloved. And then the young women of Jerusalem speak, and they're kind of the backup singers. And they just have a little small part here. They see them, the two of them in the chariot riding away and they say, Return to us. Return to us, O maid of Shulam. Come back, come back that we may see you again. And Solomon speaks again and says, Why do you stare at this young woman of Shulam as she moves so gracefully between two lines of dancers? And here's the fifth fair fight rule. Decide to forgive. Decide to forgive. The conflict is over between them. Solomon says, she's in the chariot with me. We're together. And in verse 13, he says something that sounds kind of weird. He says, look how gracefully she moves between the two lines of dancers. He's using military language to describe the celebration between two armies that have been fighting with one another and the, the hostilities come to an end. There's peace now between the two of them, and they celebrate together. And that's what finally happens here. They find each other. They're together in the chariot, and all is forgiven. They have decided to have peace. They have decided to forgive one another. Like two warring armies, they have laid down their weapons and made a decision to let go of what has been a really rough time for them to release one another from bad feelings and the need to have revenge, to even up the score. I've shared this a number of times. But there is an incredible liberty in deciding to forgive another person. You know, when we forgive someone, you know who benefits the most? We do. And you've seen these four things before, but but here's what it means to forgive. Here's what we're saying when we decide to forgive. The first thing we're saying is, I will not dwell on this incident. It may be impossible to forget it, but we can 
we can choose not to think about it. And then we're saying, I will not try to harm you because of this incident. That means we release them from that desire to take revenge, to, to even up the score. Now, please don't hear what I didn't say. If someone commits a crime, there is absolutely nothing wrong with forgiving them and allowing the law and the courts to, to issue the consequences that come with violating the law. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But what it does mean is that we don't become the judge and the jury and the executioner because of what they've done. Here's the fourth thing that it means. It means I will not bring this incident up again. And I'm telling you, that commitment all by itself would save a lot of relationships, would save a lot of marriages. In, in truth, that's just trying to be godly. Because when God forgives our sin, the Bible says He buries it deep into the sea and He never goes looking for it again. When you forgive someone, don't keep bringing it up. And then here's the fourth thing that it means. It means I will not let this incident stand between us. True forgiveness clears the decks. Takes it out of the way so that a broken relationship can be restored. Hey, and again, that's what happened when God forgave us. It restored a broken relationship. And I want you to know this. This is the bottom line on why we have to forgive. Because our relationships will die if we don't. And for some of us, that, that hits really close to home because we've got in our past dead relationships because forgiveness just didn't happen. We've done this little experiment a time or two. I'm going to ask you to participate even if you've done it before. What I want you to do is, is hold your right hand up and make a fist. You do, does everybody do that, please? And I want you to squeeze just as hard as you can. Squeeze it. Don't let go. After only a few seconds, that starts to hurt, doesn't it? Don't let go. Imagine what it would feel like to maintain that tight grip for days or weeks or months. Don't, let, don't give up on me. Don't let go. That's what unforgiveness does to us in our relationships. And you know what happens? We may not always feel it physically, but when we hold on to conflict, when we hold on to pain, when we hold on to the mistakes and shortcomings of others, it hurts. Don't let go yet. It hurts and it becomes unbearable. And soon we will do anything to get rid of the pain, including break up the relationship. The word forgiveness means... To release. Doesn't that feel better? That's what forgiveness can do for you. That's what forgiveness can do for your relationship. Conflict is inevitable. We're going to fight. But when we fight, if we can follow a few simple rules and just decide that we're going to fight fair, you know what? We can survive 
conflict. And in fact, we can come out on the other side of bad times, difficult times, with a relationship that is better and stronger than it has ever been. Now, bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.